millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, outbreaks of COVID-19 in nursing homes is rising again, what it means for the state's vulnerable population. Then, what guaranteed income projects across the Gulf South mean for three African-American mothers? Plus, cookbooks tell the story, and today's history is lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As COVID-19 cases rise in the state, so do outbreaks in long-term care facilities. According to the Department of Health, there are currently 217 long-term care cases in these high-risk locations. And AARP has released a new report analyzing COVID-19 infections and how the virus is affecting residents in nursing homes. AARP State Director Kimberly Camel shares more with our Kobe Vance. We see that the cases are starting and the deaths are starting to rise again. So, um, for instance, here in Mississippi, uh, there was a substantial uh, increase in June, and that was the second month in a row uh, that we've had an increase uh, prior to the last two months. We were on a decline, and now, you know, we seem to be rising again. Here in Mississippi, our deaths rose in the last four weeks from having a zero to now five deaths. And so that's a concern. That, that lets us know that we may be getting lax and we need to get serious again about what's happening with, with our nursing home uh, residents. In total, now this is not for the last four weeks, but in total, since the beginning of the pandemic, more than 2,000 nursing home residents in Mississippi have died from COVID-19. How do you think Mississippi's current uh, transmission rates in nursing homes and long-term care facilities compares to what we've seen in the past? So from before the shots, after the shots, and then to now, how do you think things compare? You know, I, I think, uh, again, we were doing good at, at one point because I think people, you know, it was in the news more. And, and you had more of the, the, the unfortunately, the, you know, the death count and, and so forth along those lines. And so I think people moved with a little bit more um, – immediacy and a little bit more importance. But I think now, just like the, the rest of us, if we're honest, you know, many of us, you know, we're not always masking up when we go to the, to the store anymore. And so I think it's human nature. And I think a lot of us have gotten lax. Um, but, you know, again, my, my thing is that when it comes to the nursing or residents, 
if any area, that's the area that we can never get get comfortable with. That that that's that that's the you know part of the population that we always have to remain vigilant and on top of what the CDC is saying, on top of what the trends are showing us, on top of what our own providers here are telling us. You know, th- those those residents, you know, we can't ever relax when it comes to them. We need to make sure that they're getting those shots appropriately by the timeline that they are on. We need to make sure that people that are attending to them are vaccinated as well and also practicing those CDC guidelines such as masking, washing their hands on a regular basis before they come in contact with a resident in a nursing home. And so if, if we get back to doing these things for that part of our society, I think we would do better um, with, with, with these waves. You know, unfortunately, I think COVID is always going to be here. You know, I, I don't think we're, we're never not going to have it. But when it comes to that part of our community, we've just got to get back to make sure that things are addressed with them on a timely fashion, on a timely fashion. On that note of COVID potentially not going anywhere for a long time, um, and in interviews I've had with doctors, they've agreed with that statement that it might just be something we have to live with um, although in a less severe state from what it was a few years ago. Right. What do you think the future of nursing homes might be when it comes to disease prevention and protecting residents? You know, I, I, I think the future is they've got to really make sure that they are in close contact with the, the professionals, you know, and the professionals being the CDC, being the Mississippi Health Department here, you know, listening to, you know, those that are trained in, 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 in disease prevention, those that, that are trained into letting them know when we have an outbreak, when we need to be probably even more vigilant than before. And I think when, when they bridge and have that relationship and they're really are working with each other and, and not getting into the, you know, political beliefs that that's not where, where AARP plays. And I don't think that's where uh, the nursing homes need to play. I, I think we just need to be concerned about, you know, the healthcare providers, you know, the, the, the physicians, as you just said, I, I, every physician that I've spoken to, uh, they're echoing the, the same thing that it's, it's here to stay. We've got to find a way to live with it. Uh, but we have to be vigilant. You know, there may be times to where we've got a, a variant that's a crazy variant again, and we may have to, you know, double mask up again until that variant wanes off and then we can, you know, uh, downshift a bit. But, but I think they've got to be, you know, on the cutting edge with the professionals, with the experts. Uh, listen to them and, and not let this be kind of a, you know, it's an individual thing. I, I think the nursing homes and those that are taking care of our vulnerable population, they've got to stay in close contact with the science, with the medical professionals, and, and hearing what they say needs to be done for preventive measures. Kimberly Campbell is State Director of the AARP of Mississippi. Uh, Kimberly, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Toby. Coming up, what guaranteed income projects across the Gulf South mean for three African-American mothers? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fix It 101 is a fun podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Guaranteed income is a radical idea that's actually pretty simple. 
give people in need free money every month with no strings attached. This year, dozens of cities across the country are trying it out. For the Gulf States Newsroom, Stephen Basaha and Aubrey Yuhas introduce us to three African-American mothers picked to test guaranteed income in the South. Stephen, the first person we're going to talk about is Nia. She's a young mom living in Louisiana. And we should say for Nia and everyone else in this story, we're just going to use their first names, since the women worry about being targeted if everyone knew they're getting extra cash. Right. Nia's one of 125 young adults who started receiving $350 a month in April through a program run by the city of New Orleans. I met Nia and her daughter in a park by their house. Nia's 22 years old, and her daughter celebrated her first birthday earlier this month. Whenever she was first born, everyone said like she wasn't going to make it because she was so small. She was born three months premature and weighed less than two pounds. That hit me like I thought I was going to lose my baby. And she's here now, which is great. I feel like every day is a, it should be a celebration. Nia loves being a new mom. But it has a steep learning curve. Being a young single mom, not making much money, has presented Nia with even more obstacles. High rents pushed her to move in with her grandmother, and going back to work post-pregnancy meant spending a good portion of her income on a car, gas, and daycare. Welfare is supposed to help with a lot of this. The problem is getting things like subsidized housing can take years. Other programs told Nia she was earning too much money from her job to qualify. It's why she's grateful for New Orleans' guaranteed income program. She says that $350 a month helps. When I first got it, I was thinking, like, what am I going to do with it? I think I gave my grandmother her rent money. That's what I did. I think I bought something for my baby, and then the rest of it I spent on gas. (laughs) But she also says that money doesn't go very far, especially with recent high inflation. For things to really change, Nia says she has to keep working, save for her own apartment, and eventually go back to college. And Stephen, to make that happen, she says she has to stay on her A-game, which we know isn't easy when a single emergency can throw you off that game. Yeah, and that reminds me of Maya in Birmingham. I am one of the people who bad luck seems to follow every now and then at the worst timings. Birmingham's Guaranteed Income Program is giving $375 a month to single moms like her. Maya has a baby on the way, a one-year-old daughter, and a four-year-old son who, when we visited, kept changing his outfits. This is mine? Yeah, this is your baby sharks. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. You just keep changing your clothes, huh? Maya had dreamed of going to school to be a surgeon, but bad luck kept getting in the way with things like cars breaking down and stolen rent money. Her luck seemed to turn when she got a job at a hospital delivering meals. Not the same as her dream of being a surgeon, but she loved getting to spend time with the patients. Especially for the patients that have to be there for some time. That really gives me a joy and what helps me wake up and look forward to working every day. But then her luck turned again. She says the hospital let her go because complications with her pregnancy mean she can no longer lift anything above 10 pounds. This was a big setback. But now she's receiving that guaranteed income. If I didn't have that money, then I know I'd be a tons, tons more stressed now with the baby on the way and already having kids. Um, So that takes a lot of the stress away. Any money from the program not spent on emergencies, Maya says she's spending on her kids, something we've heard from moms in other guaranteed income programs. That's true, but not true for every mom. Natasha lives in Atlanta, where a guaranteed income pilot is giving her $875 a month for the next two years. Um, and what do your kids think of the guaranteed income program? Have you explained they it to don't them? No. Oh, okay. 
I don't think I'm going to tell them because then they're going to want more money from me. <laughs> okay, that might sound harsh. Yeah, it's a little bit harsh. No, but, but Natasha's kids are older now, and for over half her life, she's put herself on the back burner. Along with raising her kids by herself, she often worked two jobs and took care of her own mom. She says for most of her adult life, she's felt like an ATM. And things are constantly being withdrawn from me, but nothing is being deposited into me. So if no deposits are being made, I'm rendered useless. Natasha says the Guaranteed Income Program feels like the deposit she's been waiting for. And the people running the program say that's the point. They want to celebrate these women and how hard they've had to fight. Natasha says at orientation, everyone from the security guard to the people helping her with paperwork were so friendly. And when it was all done, everyone started clapping for me. For them to clap for me, and no one has ever clapped for me in my life ever. I feel like stepping out and coming back in so I can continue to receive more of this applause. But it felt so good because it made me feel like I did something great. When I wasn't doing something great, it was the services that they were giving to me that was so great. And that blew my breath away. Aubrey, it sounds like Natasha is adamant about not letting that money go to waste. Yeah. Like Maya, she's always dreamed of working in healthcare and wants to go back to school to become a respiratory technician. So the thing she spent that first $850 deposit on was nothing. She's leaving that in her ATM, ready to prevent her next emergency from becoming a setback. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Opera Juhas in New Orleans. And I'm Stephen Basaha in Birmingham. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Coming up, cookbooks tell the story, and today's history is lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I'm having some problems with my shoulder uh-huh. all the way down to my to my wrist, okay. and I'm just trying to figure out which, which doctor I should call. I have rheumatoid arthritis in my wrist, and I have, I know, a torn rotor cuff. My wrist? My elbow and my shoulder have all been hurting me lately. I don't know if it's with my tendons or if it's bone-related with, you know, like osteoarthritis or... Several different things. That can be a, a complicated thing to sort of tease out. There's multiple things that could be going on to cause that pain. Sometimes it's in the joint itself, like you mentioned, wrist pain. And if you do have osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, that certainly can affect the wrist joint. But then you can also have referred pain, and that can go up the arm as well go down the arm. If you're having rotator cuff strain or a tear or arthritis in that shoulder, which if you have rheumatoid arthritis, again, you can have some primary changes to that joint. It could be from that. Or it could be from your neck, Um, and that's either from pressing on a nerve that goes all the way down the arm. You can have pain uh, just from the the compression of that nerve or, you know, some arthritis changes that are pressing on it. So here's what I would suggest. You need to go to somebody that's going to give you a very thorough exam, put you through some motions to see if they can reproduce some of those pains, and probably get some imaging. Um, And I would, in this case, probably do the whole arm 
Um, you know, at least the joints that are causing you the most problems, including the neck. And that's going to put you in the right place to, to get to that diagnosis um, correctly. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Cookbooks are a staple in many Mississippi kitchens. Some are even handed down over generations. But the pages of a cookbook contain more than just recipes and techniques. For some historians, they provide a snapshot of time, place, and a glimpse into the lives of the people that contributed to them. And today's history is lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Andrew Haley explores what hundreds of 20th century cookbooks reveal about Mississippi, especially in one Delta town. Over the course of the 20th century, even before then, um, Mississippians of all walks um, of life, all stripes, uh, produced cookbooks. Um, and these cookbooks are part of the historical record, and they can tell us a lot about how Mississippians lived in the past. And so for the past um, six or seven years, I've been working here at the University of Southern Mississippi with um, Jennifer Brannick. Um, she's the Mississippiana curator at the University Archives. And we've worked to put together a cookbook collection that preserves that culinary history of Mississippi. And perhaps the most exciting part of that collection is a collection of community cookbooks. Um, So these are cookbooks that were written by various civic organizations in Mississippi or churches or women's groups um, and put together by Mississippians. Um, And so they really tell a story. In part, they tell a story about how Mississippians ate, but they also tell a story about um, who Mississippians were. These are recipes contributed by individuals who had aspirations and goals, mostly women, and so they tell a lot about women's history. And they tell about what these women, what mattered to these women. And so we have uh, treated these as precious documents. Um, We've collected the physical cookbooks, but we've also digitized over a hundred of the historical collections, uh, community cookbooks published before 1970. The title of your presentation, Grave Concerns, Cooking and Conservation in the Mississippi Delta, why is it a grave concern, and how do cooking and conservation go together? Well, one of the things I wanted to do was show why, as a historian, we want to collect these cookbooks. You know, why expend the time and energy and money to have a cookbook collection? And so in my talk today, I'll be talking about a particular cookbook that was created in Chula, Mississippi, by the Chula Gardens uh, Garden Club. And the Chula Garden Club in, uh, in 1958 published this cookbook as a fundraiser. And here there's a bit of a pun in the title, Grave Concerns. It was a fundraiser to create a cemetery, okay. um, a place to bury the dead. Okay. Um, at the okay. time, Chula did not have its own white cemetery, um, and this was a cemetery for the 
white community in Chula, but remarkably, it was not just a cemetery. They set aside, so they purchased 35 acres, um, and they set aside 15 acres of that land for the cemetery itself. But the remaining 20 acres were set aside to become a nature preserve. And what's fascinating about this is that this is a time in Mississippi, and particularly in the Delta, where ideas of conservation are usually tied to agriculture. Um, following the New Deal um, and uh, the Great Depression programs, agricultural policies that men implemented were designed to help preserve the soil um, and to keep agriculture alive and active and profitable. But what they were doing was uh, their own project and a very different project to trying to preserve some land um, and protect that land. And that was really because that is what we're trying to do in the Delta today. Is this a diverse selection of recipes representing diverse cultures? So, yes. Um, and, and there are some limits on what I can say about the diversity of the, the, the cookbook. Um, in, in many ways, it was. Um, what it did not include, or at least did not acknowledge, was the contribution of Black cooks. Many of the women who belonged to the garden club had um, uh, black servants who worked in their house, black cooks who cooked for their family, and those women are not acknowledged in this cookbook. So does that mean they took their recipes and submitted them? We can't always know um, because it's not explicit, but there are some subtle clues in the cookbook that suggest that is the case in many, at least in some cases. So what did you learn about the culture as you went through this you know, the first of these community cookbooks are published in, in Mississippi just before the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And I think there's a few lessons we can take away by looking at these cookbooks. Um, the first is that Mississippi, which was we sometimes think of as being backwards, was not. Um, just like the rest of the country, Mississippians were experimenting with exciting foods and food trends. Um, the other thing that I think is probably the most exciting takeaway is how active women were in the communities where they lived. These cookbooks, um, and in some cases, these are the only published documents produced by a particular town or community. In some cases, we have cookbooks for towns that no longer exist. But what they are a record of is that women were very active in their local community. At some level, we all know that women are important um, and were historically important. The evidence of their contributions to Mississippi society, they're not, they were not preserved in the same way that men's contributions were preserved in archives. Um, and so this cookbook collection allows us to see women's activities in a much clearer way. And to be clear, this would be primarily white women, is that correct? Because they could move about society, they had free reign of society? They had more access to the printing presses, more access to the financing that was required to create a community cookbook. And one of the things that has been shocking to us putting together this collection is that we have not been able to find, published before 1970, a single African-American community cookbook. Um, for a whole host of reasons, um, it appears that African-American women didn't produce these cookbooks um, or didn't produce very many of them. 
probably part of that had to do with money, but he also had to deal with the role of cooking in the black community. Um, many African-American women made their living by preparing recipes for others. And in some ways, that intellectual property, their recipes, it was not something that they could share without compromising their own position in society. So I think black women cooked within the church and they cooked together, but they were less likely to publish their recipes. Andrew Haley, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us. You are going to be talking at the Mississippi Department of Archives and Histories. History is lunch at noon today. Very interesting. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.